This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal Nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards Organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. podcast for today, the 22nd of September 2020. We've got quite a bit to get through. We've got some news. We've got some uh, exciting results to announce. We've also got some other announcements. Uh, We've got a couple of little featurettes and we also have to reflect on some sad news that occurred over the weekend as part of our quote of the day. So let's get on with it. Now, if you don't know what Westwards does, I'm not sure where you've been, but we are a literature organisation from Western Sydney. We cover pretty much everything west of Parramatta, uh, up, up into the Hawkesbury, down to uh, down to, into the MacArthur area of Campbelltown and beyond, right out across the Blue Mountains and everywhere in between. A little bit of a factoid for you, 10% of Australia's population lives in Western Sydney, so it's a huge area, 2.5 million people. And uh, we see it as part of our role, in fact most of our role, is to allow and help and encourage and provide pathways for those people to either enjoy stories from other people or tell their own stories in their own voices. That's what we're here to do, that's what we try to do, and that's what I hope we achieve. Uh, So today we've got a little bit of news from... uh, Westwards and what we've been doing, there's also an opportunity for you to contribute through a fundraiser that we're running called Booktober, so we'll come back to that in a minute. But first I want to talk about some sad news that occurred over the weekend, just past uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Now this, every, I think most people in the world know about uh, this occurrence, not least of all because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was one of the Supreme Court justices in the United States, she, was, uh, she passed away and has left a vacancy on that bench, which means that the President of the United States, Donald Trump, is going to name somebody to replace her, and it is going to be someone very conservative, and then there is going to be a lot of political wrangling trying to work out whether they can get that next person over the line before the election. Now, I don't want to get into all the politics side of it. Of course, I have an opinion, as we all do about this, but I'm not here today to talk about the politics of this, I'm here to talk about some of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Not so much what she stood for. She was, of course, a, a bit of a liberal icon in the uh, smaller liberal sense. She was a, a bit of a lefty, if you like. She was very much a dissenter. She, she felt very strongly that, and, and I think this is something that we can reflect on as writers, she felt very strongly that if you, if, if you lose in a court setting... Uh, if you're on the, on the side of the bench that doesn't get the result you wanted, you don't sit there and go, well, that's a shame, I tried my hardest to get the result I wanted. No, you, you dissent. And in her case, she made 
the art of dissent actually an art, a bit of an art form. She became very good at writing scathing dissents or dissensions, I'm not sure what the, uh, what the noun is there, but scathing pieces of writing that basically said, this is why I think this is a bad decision. I know we have to accept the result because of the Constitution, etc., but this is my opinion. And she made it very clear that she thought that these uh, uh, dissensions uh, would be reflected on in the future and would be useful in the future as we look back on, on how we progress or, or the opposite of that. So I initially started out by saying or thinking that perhaps I, I shouldn't go with Ruth Bader Ginsburg for today's quote because she's not a writer, but of course she was a writer. She was a very, very fine writer. Her, her writings were very carefully measured. She was able to say some incredibly uh, cutting things, but all said with a smile and said with great grace. She was a quietly spoken woman. Uh, achieved an enormous amount for the rights of women and uh, in terms of politics and in terms of employment and abortion rights and all those other things. So she was a very, very fine writer who had, a, had strong opinions and didn't mind expressing them. So I could go through a whole bunch of different quotes that she, she had about uh, how you deal with disappointment and those sorts of things, but I've chosen a couple here that I think we can... I was going to say shoehorn into something that is, that is relative for writers. I don't think we have to shoehorn it. I think we can actually find parallels very quickly between what we do in the creative life and, and the quotes that she, she gave. So I'm just, I've got four here that I want to go through very quickly. The first one, she says, and this, I suppose this one's a bit of a truism when it comes to being an artist. We always say that this is what we have to do, and she's just confirming that. She said, I'm a strong believer in listening and learning from others. I don't know that that needs to be unpacked terribly much more than that. I, I think it's pretty clear what she means and I think that we can all agree that if you want to be a strong uh, creator, if you want to be a writer or whatever, you need to be listening and learning from others. She also said if you want to be a true professional, do something outside yourself. Now, I guess we can unpack this one in a couple of different ways. We could say don't be so obsessed with what you do that you don't have time to explore other parts of your life. Maybe that's what she meant. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was famous for sometimes getting two hours of sleep. She would go home from the court. Her husband would sometimes drive down there and pick her up and say, no, you're coming home for dinner now. She'd go home and have dinner. Then she'd go into her office at home and she would work until four or even later in the morning, four or five in the morning. Then she would grab a couple of hours sleep and then she'd be back at the Supreme Court offices in uh, by for the first meeting at about eight o'clock or something and she did this uh, she was 87 when she died and, and she did this for a number of years so uh, but she didn't let that I was watching a documentary about her which I can really recommend called R um, RBG uh, it's on ABC iView at the moment if you can check it out um, fascinating insight into who she was and one of the things she really loved was opera. And in fact, at the end of the, her life, uh, well, not the end of her life, but uh, at a couple of years back, she actually was invited to appear with a major opera company and she had a spoken part in an opera. And she saw that, and there's footage of her doing it, and she's obviously just loving the fact that she's doing, taking part in this art form that she really, really adored. So I guess there's something in that. If you want to be a true professional, do something outside yourself. 
I don't know that yet. It has to be skydiving. It might be just playing in a band or it might be, uh, I don't know, being a, a, a playing sport or, or whatever it might be. But the, uh, the last two quotes, uh, I think, are fairly relevant to what we do as writers. The first one is, so, she says, so often in life, things that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great good fortune. And she expands on this a little bit and talks about the fact that if, she had, uh, if things had gone the way she had hoped initially, she would have been a senior uh, partner at, at some law firm. And she says, I would now be a retired senior partner and living a very comfortable life. But that didn't turn out like that. And, and at the time, I think she was very disappointed. And, and I think we can all look back on, on times in our lives when we have wanted one particular thing in our artistic life and it's been turned down for whatever reason. It might not have been, been pub, it might be not being published by the person or the company, the publishing house that you'd hoped for and having to be picked up by someone who you consider to be less ideal and then you discover that that, in fact, is a perfect fit for you. It might be being rejected by one person and picked up by another. It might be being told and feeling disappointed that your manuscript isn't ready and going away and you're having to work on it some more. There's, there's all sorts of examples we can, we can speculate about and, and think about. But I, I guess her, uh, her advice here or her wisdom here is just because something feels like a smackdown or an impediment or something getting in the way, perhaps that uh, is something that is going to open a door for something else. And the other one, which I, I suppose is in a sense related, but I think we can also once, once again find you know, those of us who are practising artists or aspiring artists, we can all find something in this one as well. And it's just good life advice, really. Don't be distracted by emotions like anger, envy, resentment. They just zap energy and waste time. And it is easy as creators to occasionally go, you know, how come that person's having all the success when I, I can see that uh, when I don't consider their work to be as good as other people's or whatever it might be. But those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of uh, explorations in our own way of thinking really do nothing but zap our energy, as, as, as Ginsberg said, zap our energy and waste our time. So it can be easy to kind of wallow in that, but if time comes when you just have to go, it's time to get on with it, accept what it is, and perhaps, hopefully, to go back to her, her other quote, maybe this is actually going to help me in the long run. So valet to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a fine, fine woman, a family woman. She was in love with her husband up to the day that he died. He was a great foil for her, a very funny man. She, she was adoring of her family and she was adoring of her country and she was also incredibly driven to make difference, to make change. So I've got some news to share with you, very exciting news. Uh, the shortlist recently came out for the Western Sydney Awards for Business Excellence. And Westwards has managed to uh, land on the shortlist for two of the categories. So, what are they? The first one is uh, the organisation as a whole has been uh, shortlisted for the Commonwealth Bank Excellence in Arts and Culture Award. So we're one of seven or eight organisations that have been shortlisted for that, so that's very exciting. Basically what this means, you know, is there a prize attached? I'm not even sure, I haven't looked into that, but we do know that these sorts of things make uh, being taken seriously by the kinds of people who um, offer funding and who 
help the door, help the light stay on. It's very useful for that. It gives us real street cred. We think it's deserved, and we hope you do as well. So we're very proud to announce that we are on the on the shortlist for the Commonwealth Bank Excellence in Arts and Culture Award as part of the Western Sydney Awards for Business. But the other one that we, we have been shortlisted for is, I think, equally exciting. And it's actually for an individual in our organisation, Michael Campbell, our Executive Director. Uh, he has been personally nominated for the AAA City Removalist Outstanding Business Leader Award. So congratulations to Michael as well. I mean, those of us who work with Michael see how hard he works. Anyone who's ever met Michael knows how passionate he is and how hard he works and how many hours he puts in. And, and we, as employees of Westwoods, would like to thank Michael for all the hard work he does. And we think it's entirely fitting that uh, he has been uh, recognised in this way and by virtue of what he does and the rest of us do, that the organisation has as well. So give us a moment to congratulate ourselves and Michael uh, on this excellent award or shortlisting for the award, nomination. And the announcement of the winners we made on the 20th of November. We're hoping it's going to be a, a, an in-person event, but who knows these days. The What Matters competition is a writing competition that we were involved with in conjunction with the Whitlam Institute and Western Sydney University. Uh, we haven't got, we can't announce the winners yet, but we can tell you that uh, the young people who wrote for this competition, which is a competition of writing about issues that concern young people, uh, the, the winning or the shortlisted writers all went into a draw and three schools were drawn out to receive a, a, an online author visit set up and supported by Westwards. And I don't think I'm allowed to say who the three schools are yet because I know a couple of them were about to announce this week to their students that they were receiving this prize. So we don't want to go and, and, and spoil the party just yet. But I can tell you that one of these three schools, the year six students of this school, are going to be meeting via online, Zoom, uh, Tamsin Janu, who wrote the Figgy books and is uh, also one of our regular presenters for Westwards. A year five class at a school is going to be received, or the entire grade is going to be meeting online, going to be meeting Tim Harris, who is a very successful and popular writer for young people. And another school, Year 8 group, is going to be meeting Buri Pryor, a very successful Indigenous writer, who was also one of the inaugural children's laureates, for Australian children's laureates. So we're very excited and grateful that these three writers have agreed to uh, be part of this. And so when the schools have announced to their particular groups that this is what's happening, we'll tell you who those schools are. But that's very exciting for them and we want to thank those writers for their generosity in being part of this. Another piece of news that I'd like to... It's more a reminder, really, is that the Blacktown Merrill Writers and Prize uh, it closes on the 27th of September, so that's later this week. Uh, you might want to jump on there and enter if you live in the Blacktown area. There are various categories. The theme for this year is... Now, I've got to try and get this right. The whole world at home, I think it is. Words to that effect, the whole world at home. But if you go to the Westwards website and have a look on there, all the details are there. Uh, there is real prize money attached to this one. And there are various categories for different aged kids and adults, poetry and fiction.
going to have a very quick break from the news and share something with you. This is a reading, one of the Westwards uh, YouTube channel readings uh, from James Knight. James Knight is a, a friend of Westwards. He's a used to be a cricket journalist, a sports journalist. He's been a radio presenter. And now he writes predominantly non-fiction. Or one of his most recent books is a book called Back on Track, which is a, a biography of Bernie Shakeshaft, who was the gentleman who set up the Backtrack Youth Works organisation. So here's James Knight reading a short excerpt from his book, Back on Track. Armadale, 2018, the hometown of Backtrack. The Norwester blows across the hills. It scuffs up dust, bends yellowing grasses, and sends a shiver through the lustreless leaves of the eucalypts. A few clouds hurry by. Earlier in the morning, some had teased the earth, but the rain that fell wasn't enough to wet a pebble. It's the middle of a long winter. It has been a much longer drought. A dark grey Holden Colorado dual cab heads out of town. Its driver wears a blue, a black puffer jacket, a blue woolen jumper, blue shirt, blue thermal vest, and dusty grease-stained blue jeans. His eyes are also blue. So is his language. I'll sort it out later he says to someone over the phone's loudspeaker. His delivery is direct, but not brusque. He holds a steaming cup of coffee that has failed to wash away the nicotine gravel in his voice. Even when sitting, he appears lanky, skinny legs, long arms, bony fingers. His skin is scarred and blotchy, and his reddened face is framed by wrinkles across his forehead and a grey speckled gingery beard on his chin. He drives further out of town, occasionally easing his work boot off the accelerator to look at a shed, a business, a paddock, a fence. He knows them all. Finally, he heads over a crest on the bitumen and finds what he has been looking for. A small mob of pregnant Angus cows as black as the morning are dawdling along the side of the road. Behind them, a teenage boy sits on an idling motorbike. When the boy notices the Colorado pull over, he stops starts on the throttle until he reaches the vehicle. The driver winds down a window. Good to see you got the warning signs out. Well done. The boy nods. His eyebrows are stitched together by the squeeze of a balaclava and tight helmet. Pimples and freckles dot his face. A drop of snot hangs off the tip of his nose. A short exchange follows. Where are you poking them to? That gully over there. Much traffic? Nah. You keeping an eye out in case one of them starts dropping a calf? Yeah. The boy's answers can barely be heard above the wind. All right, just one more thing, says the driver. What would happen if that helmet fell off? Um... Uh, I, I could hurt my head. Well, then it might be an idea to tie up the chin strap. The boy with his fingers stiffened by the cold does as he should. That's the way, says the driver. Stay safe, all right? The Colorado moves off, and for a moment the driver watches the boy in his rear vision mirror. Then he does what life has taught him to do. He looks ahead. As Bernie Shakeshaft always has.
So that was James Knight reading from his book, Back on Track. If you want to have a think back to when you were at school, and they used to have the readathons where they would hand out the sheet of paper with all the lines on it, and you'd have to nominate which books you're going to read, and then you would go home and you would start pestering your parents or your aunt or your uncle or your grandparents or your friends for a certain amount per book. How much will you give me per book that I read? And they would say, oh, I'll give you five cents, 20 cents, whatever it might have been. And then over the holidays you would read all those books and you would tell them how many you read and they would give you the money, you'd bring it in and it would go to some cause. Well, what we have is the grown-up equivalent of that. It's called Booktober. Now, the details for this are all on our website, westwords.com.au, or you can find them on the booktober.org.au site. And it's basically, here's how it works. You can either be a bookworm, which is the person who does the reading, or you can be the person who sponsors. I don't know what the fancy word for that is, maybe sponsor. Or you can do both, in fact. And the idea is that you nominate a number of books that you're going to read, and then you get reading, and it's... uh, we have a number, if you go to the Booktober site, there are a number of suggested reading lists based on various, uh, various different categories. All the money that is raised in this fundraiser goes to putting books in the hands of young people in Western Sydney who might not otherwise have had access to them. Now, I want you to have a think about something. I want to think about technology and some of the technologies that exist in the world and which ones have been around longest. And the book has been around for a pretty long time and it hasn't actually evolved that much, to be honest, because it's almost reached its perfect evolution. I think the fact that you can pick up a book that is very compact and it might contain 50, 100,000 words of information in there, it's something tactile and it doesn't require batteries and in its current form it's pretty finely, uh, finely tuned and, and, and evolved. And that's what we're trying to enthuse kids about by putting it, uh, by putting books into their hands. Book, kids who might not otherwise have had a lot of access to books that they can own and uh, and enjoy. So, our uh, ambassador, Westwood's ambassador, the actor and and director Brian Brown, and he had a little message that he'd like to share with you. Oh, hi, Brian Brown here. I'm the uh ambassador for Westwards and uh, they tell me that uh, the month of October is going to be called Booktober with the intention of getting people to read as many books as possible and how are we going to do it? We're going to do it in a way that we raise some funds for for kids who don't have the opportunity to get hold of books, Um, give them the opportunity to read and get carried away in their fantasies and the fun of reading books. Um, So you can either be a book reader, reading masses of books in October and get someone to sponsor you, or you can be a sponsor and find someone that you're going to, going to back on the number of books. And that way the funds can go into helping us uh, provide books and, and help kids, as uh, Westwards does, give kids opportunities that don't have them for reading and writing. So uh, let's get behind this initiative. Let's read. I'm reading Gorky Park. Ooh, dense one. And... Um, Let's see if we can't uh, get masses of money to buy masses of books. Good on you. So that was Brian Brown talking about Booktober. So again, go to our website, westwords.com.au, or you can go to booktober.org.au, and all the details are there. We have another bit of exciting news, and that is the Blake Poetry Prize, which is in, run in association with Casula Powerhouse. 
we, uh, we have recently, today in fact, announced the winner and the highly commended, or effectively the runner-up. And they are. The winner was, well, let's go the other way. The highly commended was Louise Carter. Now, Louise is a Sydney-based poet whose work has appeared in Best Australian Poems, Cordite Poetry Review, Mangin, Westerly, Seizure, a whole bunch of uh, fine journals. And she wrote a poem called The History of Sadness. And here she is reading it. History of Sadness. The window frames a pink dusk, dot matrix through the fly screen. Miraculous is a bit much, but it's been nearly a season without sky. Smoke choked for so long, I'm a child noticing God for the first time. Bat silhouettes pass overhead in wobbly trajectories. I call Stephen from his scrubbing to watch the swirling silver and lilac curlicules of cloud, a magic trick or prophecy. Our eyes are still wet. He's intent on tricking the bats, clapping to send them off course. The heady stench of jasmine is aggressively feminine. Petals stream. I'm not clucky so much as I am tired of grief. Each month, the history of sadness congregates inside me, virulent. Ants swarm toilet paper in tissue boxes. I reach for a Kleenex and smear myself with peppery energy. Jesus. The dishwasher clicks and shushes. I could pray, but I'm not sure what to ask for. They're seeking fig trees and sex. In a cafe, I asked a magic eight ball if everything would be okay, and it replied, yes. There's an old cockatoo that's been coming around, skeleton gray and mangy. The other birds squawk it away. Maybe it was a cruel person in another life. This is how I justify my actions when I spray mosquitoes and wasps. But don't bad people start as children who've been traumatized. I wanted to end the cycle. Grief is an addict, pleading. You'll do anything. I wasn't arguing with Stephen. I saw his side and agreed with it. There's an inner misalignment, like a car tire that veers away from the highway. Hot nights dreaming of still alive cats and ballet exams. Sweat, the body crying. Struggling up staircases on torpid days. Unconquerable laundry hampers. Then change. Cool air, relief, rain. While sorting underpants, I get a response of sorts. Pay attention to whatever isn't pain. The room expands with subdued brightness. That was Louise Carter reading her poem, History of Sadness. And the winner was Judith Nangala Crispin, a poet and visual artist of a Pangarang descent. And she's currently the poetry editor of the Canberra Times. And she's also the author of two additional published collections of poems, The Myrrh and The Lumen Seed. And she wrote a poem, it's effectively a block poem. If you look at it on the page, it's in the, in the form of one big block. And it's called On Finding Charlotte in the Anthropological Record. 
we meet on the surface of a photograph, as a fish and bird might meet in a lake, at a point of sky and the water's plain. Charlotte, in a book called The Aborigines of Northern Victoria, sits jade black on earth, wind disarranging her hair. Trees obscured by falls of campfire ash, her nudity is covered by a blanket. I don't know if her breasts are hanging, if her thighs bear designs or marks. A needlework of scars crosses her chest, repeated dots like patterns on a goanna's back like rain spat by goannas into dirt. Soon constellations will appear over branches, on this night of ninety years ago, this never again night, and she asks me, where did you go, girl, with your made-up history, your ever whiter babies? This is what remains, a record of relatedness, scars to hold the memory of someone precious after they've died. We begin by cutting skin, rub wounds with gum and ash, black ants to cauterize the flesh. I remember them telling me, don't worry, this blackness fades with each generation. Charlotte is a map of a country stained by massacres, Skull Creek, Poison Well, Black Gin's Leap. A geography of skin and land, maps for the returning, for those who speak only a murderer's tongue, whose songlines are erased, who consulted departments of births, deaths and marriages, who stood beside rented Toyotas clutching photographs in a hundred remote communities asking strangers, do you know my family? Can you tell me who I am? This moment, an old light is crossing the boundaries of emulsion, and I say to her, Charlotte, grandmother of my grandfather, I am Judith, and these are my scars. So that was Judith Mangala Crispin, the winner of the 2020 Blake Poetry Prize. So uh, of that poem, the judges said, Charlotte, a prose poem about identity, stood out with its form, imagery, importance, and its truth. It is a poem about a meeting across boundaries of space and time, weighted with the erasure of identity and song lines of a legacy of broken families, racism, and discovery. It is an important Australian poem, tender, real, conversational, She's telling us a story and we enter every word, every vivid image, a poem that all Australians should take time to read. So congratulations to Judith. Uh, I'm actually planning to interview both of these women uh, on, on our YouTube interview uh, playlist. Uh, our, our, pl our YouTube channel is called YouTube Official, if that's what you want to put into the search bar. And there is our usual suite of videos and, and things on there. Uh, to go and, and enjoy some poetry videos, some readings. Uh, in fact, as I mentioned, the James Knight reading is on there and a whole bunch of others. But also uh, the announcements of the Blake Prize and in time, the interview that I plan to be doing with both of these women. Judith Nangala Crispin, the winner of the Blake Poetry Prize this year and the highly commended poet, Louise Carter. So congratulations to both those women for sending in two very fine poems. And also congratulations and thanks to all the other poets who sent 
their work in. Uh, there was some really fine poetry in there. So that's it from us today. So thank you very much for listening and we'll look forward to speaking with you in a couple of weeks. And as we always say here at Westworks, happy creating. Thank you.